Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider træt af alle de der podcasts og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lytte til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel. A fully mature, grown-up man. We're both men. We're the same age. I feel like I'm feeling like making this. Up. I don't want to do the age thing on you, but I feel like we must be roughly the same age. Yeah, I'm 41 this year. Ah, uh, just a little bit older. It's fine. Anyway, so so we had to slip that in. You're like, oh yeah, I think I'm around like 31. Is yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, sure. You knew, you knew. This whole thing is a massive. I felt like <laughs> I felt like when you were in the royal family, we were the same age. We were both the same child in our families. We were slightly yes. geniuses, and no one understood us. And so we had to <laughs> exactly. dumb ourselves down. <laughs> exactly. To yeah. yeah, be um, the family, be the family. You know, brewmaker all the time <laughs> so i thank you so much for reaching out originally so so for those who don't know you reached out about a year ago um mm-hmm. right in the middle of just just after george floyd when there was so many protests going on it was a very very active time and you were just like if there's anything i can do to help i love what you guys are doing um and at the yeah. time i think it was just so manic it was very difficult to even know what to do with that response so mm-hmm. i said mm-hmm. at some point we will definitely have a conversation um and yeah. then obviously i took some time off the podcast and now i'm back and i, I feel like actually now it's almost a year on it feels like a really mm-hmm. good time to have that conversation 
about where you were a year ago um, and what yeah. did you observe, which made you, you reach out? Because ultimately, I think, in, in essence, you were holding your hand out as almost like an ally saying, you know, how can I support? What can I use my platform to do? What can I use myself to do? Um, and not many people felt comfortable doing so. Can, can you tell me what was happening for you at that time? What did you observe and what made you actually put your hand up? Well, it's, you know, if, if you've got any kind of humanity at all, then um, the, the George Floyd protests were, were shocking to the world, but they were shocking. What was what was a possibly a more watershed moment is they were shocking to the white world because because the black world, you know, has 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 lived in this in this structure of power dif difference of a power um you know of, of a l lower power status in society for years and so it shook the white world into going this isn't right it shook the, it shook the majority because I, I believe that most people are decent but it's very difficult to uh, have your eyes opened to a power structure that benefits you you know and I think that I was trying like a lot of sort of decent well-meaning white liberals I was like uh oh what can I do what can I do about this how how is there something I can you know rather than just say oh this is terrible and put out a tweet um I was trying to listen and and go well what I think I read an article that's what it was mom and I read an article and it said uh, you know, read up on this, understand the struggle. And if you have black friends, reach out. Now is a good time to reach out and say, listen, if there's anything I can do. So I did that to my, to my, to my black friends. And as one of the, the things I was doing, I happened to be watching, I think there was an online, like a forum, an online sort of protest because for people that couldn't go out because of COVID. And I saw your, I saw you talking, uh, it said Marvin's founded Dope Black Dads. I went, this guy seems really clued in and we could have a conversation. So I just, that's why I texted you and I, I, I um, Instagram messaged you and I was like, listen, if there's anything that we can talk about, should we? And I'm, I'll be honest, it's a little bit, it's a little bit um, daunting, this kind of thing. Um, because, and please, please, please don't, don't for a second, let me go, Hey, you, you don't know how difficult it is for us white people. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, uh, you think you've got it. Hard. I've got to come on here and talk about a podcast. And it's a bit daunting because sticking your head above the parapet, you know, it, it, it seems like such an obvious thing to do because why wouldn't you sort of stick your head above the parapet to go, this is terribly wrong. And so we should talk about it, but it, it is weirdly not as, as simple as it, as it should be. Because there are that I did at the time read counter arguments going, you know what, your your time now as a white liberal, your time now is just to shut up and let let other people speak. And I was like, okay. And then I've since read articles going, um, it's not enough just to to buy black literature. Uh, and I'm like, uh, okay. And 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 the one I hear a lot is it's not it's not black people's problem to educate you about racism, which I absolutely get because it, it, it must be exhausting. It must be exhausting having to, you know, been Toni Morrison talking about nothing else for, for so many, imagine what she could have done. So I get all that. But that, what, what I think that means is that people are hesitant when they shouldn't be to go, let's have a conversation. Let's at least just have any conversation uh, and start it, which is why I reached out to you a year later to go, I meant what I said a year ago. I'd love to, ch I'd love to chat to you if you're still interested, if that makes absolutely. sense. Absolutely. I, I think um, what's really nice about that is is the follow up. To be honest, like I think in 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 there's a lot of short ter termism in these types of things, or or just also just fear and just that you don't want to put your hands up twice. And you know, I hadn't actually forgotten. It was just a more of actually we were just getting back into our our steam sure. in terms of having these conversations. But what was really nice is that you put your hand up again just to reiterate what it is. It, it, when did you first you know become aware of 
of of even racism as a concept because you we're, we're, let's go back a bit like in terms of where you were raised i assume it's northwest england I'm, I'm assuming but i could be wrong um and so can you tell me a little bit more about the context in which you were raised in so i grew up in bolton which is um well i grew up in berry went to school in bolton and in bolton there's a very very large um indian pakistani community not really a large black community and so in school, every every class I was in was like probably a third um, Indian Pakistani. And to be honest, I went to a nice school, and 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 it was I didn't really see. I tell you what, we weren't taught about in school. We weren't talking about British colonialism and occupation. So it's really interesting to think that I was in school with with a load of lads for whom generate for whom ancestrally they had their their great grandparents even had lived under the British Raj, and it was just never talked about, which is something that we should probably talk about what needs to change. But um, here's the, here's the, here's the joyous naivety of growing up as a, as a white guy in a nice school. It's like, I remember learning about the Notting Hill riots and, and you know, the waves of immigration and what we now know to be called Windrush, which I don't think I remembered from school. Um, I'm thinking how awful. I'm so glad racism doesn't exist anymore, <laughs> which is, you know, it's which- over. Uh, yeah, yeah, we did it. My generation, yay. Um, and and the, I think there's two ways of looking at that. One, you know, it's quite sweet, you know, that that there was no sense of racism in my class and my friends were called, you know, Todd, um, Simon, James, um, Pervez, Ramzan, Prabhu, right? That's lovely. But equally, again, that's what, that's, I, I don't understand how so many people misunderstand the term white privilege. It, that's one of the privileges of having to grow up going, hey, racism's not around anymore, is it? That's nice. So, well, of course, you've, that's not part of your lived experience. So why would you think that? So, um, I sort of wasn't aware of it. And, and then, yeah, I moved to London and this is another thing as well. When I, when I went out in my early twenties and I was kind of clubbing a lot, I was all about R&B and hip hop. I know I don't look like an R&B hip hop kind of guy, but, um, that's what, what I was all about. And the, probably the vast majority of my friends, about seven or eight friends, um, were black guys. And I think that it's a really weird thing when you go, some of my best friends are black, you know, that whole, that whole stereotype. But in a way, sometimes that, that does mean something as well. Like we, we universally like joke that that's what racists say. But also if, 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 you know, seven of 10 of your, of your best friends are black guys, then, then you, you are kind of, you, you're socializing and having their company. I don't know. I, I, maybe it counts for something. I don't know. Um, anyway, so I, think, I was, I think I was it all, does count for something. I think, yeah. I think it, it, it's not a retort for when you make a yeah. racial faux pas. So it's yeah. it's not an excuse. Exactly. And, so, and what, what ultimately, no, and I think ultimately what we're asking, because this is also, you know, the, the, the skills we're talking about here are, are more than racism. This is just you as a, hu- as a human being, anybody. Yeah. So let's just say yeah. you, you, st- you offended somebody or you said something, you wouldn't use the one thread that connects you. Like exactly. if you made a yeah. cancer joke and someone said, my mom died of cancer, you wouldn't be like, oh, well, I thought I had cancer once. So that's so, so yeah. okay to make that <laughs> joke. Very, so, yeah, it's so, a very so good example. Yeah. What, what we're yeah. asking for in that moment is just accountability that, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. And just own it on the fact that you didn't mean it rather yeah. than the contextualize it as, I have I have seven friends who are black and I I love Jay Z's last album because then that then that's like saying by loving black culture you also love black people exactly, which I think is an, exactly. another thing that is really really common I think you know black culture is is been exported around the world you know Jamaican culture if you're talking about South African mm-hmm. culture Car- uh, Nigerian and Ghanaian culture all those cultures are very popular and the people have spread yeah. in different all around the world so often there's parts of the culture people really really love when you want to deal with the actual human 
humanity of them. And we hear about what's happening in, in the actual local countries themselves or the people who show up in your lives. It's kind of less mm -hmm. so. You don't want to deal with some of the things that you may not understand, but you like, you know, yeah. Afro beats. And so Wizkid is great, but I don't want you to actually like, you know, bring your food here or something. And I think that's what we're yes. trying to break the barriers of. You can't just like one bit because they're all interconnected. Um, so, so in terms yeah. of like growing up in, in Bolton, you said it's particularly majority sort of South Asian um, population. Yeah. Is, is was was there like because uh, you know was there a lot of South Asian racism? Was it like a divide? Was it inclusive? Was it how how did you well, this get, is, find this it? This is what I mean. It, it felt inclusive, and I, and I think that by the standards of probably other schools, because like I say, it was a good school. It, it probably was quite inclusive, but but I left school uh, under the under the assumption that none of those lads had had under had undergone any race. Certainly not in school had had been you know, received any kind of racist abuse or pressure or anything. Um, and it's only looking back now that I realise how astonishingly naive that is. Now, maybe they didn't, but the fact to assume that they didn't is astonishingly naive because, you know, and, and a little bit self-congratulatory. Congratulatory. I, I guess some did, some didn't. Um, it, was quite an, it was quite an inclusive school. It was quite a nice place. But the, but the, the point is, I just wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have known because of being in the position to not have to worry about it, to not have to care about it. And and then you start to, again, like last year, it started to make me think of things like, okay, well, what about the times where somebody's had to, um, is the phrase code switch? Somebody's had to like appear to just sort of like be less of whatever they, they, they might be in one situation in another situation. I don't know how many of those guys felt that they were having to, to, to play white. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I should probably, I should probably ask him actually, but it didn't occur to me really. It didn't really even occur to me up until, I mean, maybe it did in a sort of secondary sense, but not, it didn't sort of crystallize this idea that that's what people have to live through until sort of around this time last year. Have, have you ever found yourself having to assimilate like that in any scenario, whether it's gender, race, religion, have you ever had to find yourself adjusting what you believe your values are to fit into um, an environment? Um, yes, actually. Yes. Um, when I first started playing, uh, and thank you for letting me get this in. When I first started playing semi-professional football, I feel like we teed that, we teed that up nicely. <laughs> <laughs> when, when I was on the verge of playing in a Premier League. Like, yes, exactly. Yeah. No, I think, um, it was very, there was a, it was, it was a very kind of, um, prison rules, kill or be killed banter attitude in, in the, in the changing rooms, right? And um, you turned up and I turned up and I was already sort of well-known for being on the TV at this point. So there was this extra like, right, who's this lad coming in, you know? Mm. And so it, 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 I guess what you'd call it now is sort of toxic masculinity. Now, to be honest, a lot of it was quite funny, but that's okay for me because I was able to go, okay, well, I'm, you know, I guess I'm a performer. I'll sort of, I'll switch into whatever mode this is and, and join it. But if you don't have those skills, it must have been an extremely intimidating environment. And some people say that, you know, if you can't, you know, I've heard it said by older generations, oh yeah, football's all about what you do on the pitch, but also you've got to be able to take the pressure, take the banter and whatever. And it's like, well, look, I'm not, I'm not really, that's a different point, but I guess, yeah, I definitely remember thinking I'm going to have to switch up the way I behave and, and give up the way I uh, tend to, to the, give up the way I talk to talk more like this in order to fit in. Definitely, mm. definitely. And what was the, what would you say the impact of that adjustment was for you? Um, it was, it was difficult. It was difficult at first because, because when I would turn up to play football, it was more about the, 
uh, not, I, I, well, actually, in a very, very specific sense, it was difficult to play good football because you worried that every time, like even training, even in training, right? You're trying to make sure you're on the first team or whatever. And every time you're worried about getting something wrong, you're worried that there's going to be, you're just going to be absolutely slaughtered, you know? And it's, yeah, it takes, a, it takes a while to learn to, um, to laugh that off. But in terms of the way it, it, it does have to, ch- you go, right, I have to, I have to put on this kind of, this costume, this shell of this armor of being an, a different person to be able to get through this. Now I'm talking about obviously an extremely mild version. I'm not talking about something that I'm not trying to liken this to racism in any way. I'm just like, no, 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 yeah, I guess I have experienced that idea of having to change up the way you behave. And, and to be honest, I think I probably in those early years ended up saying things that I don't, that I'm not particularly pleased about. I, th- I think if you're a decent person, you look back and you go, you know, the world has changed in a massive way. The way we talk about women has changed. Um, hopefully, you know, the way we talk about race is changing. Hopefully, even in this conversation and stuff. And you just go, I wouldn't talk, I wouldn't talk to or about women in the same way that I did when I was in my early twenties. And not just because I'm older, but because the world has changed. And you just go, why was that okay? You know, so, um, yeah, I look back on a, a fair bit of that with like, with regret and just, um, you just shrug and think, well, it was the world. Do do you think that that impacted your ability to succeed in the game in any way, shape, or form in terms of like your sense of belonging or how much mental you know force you could apply to foot being a footballer if you're worried about other things in the in the wider context or the actual changing room or the culture? Did that impact your ability to like mentally apply yourself? Well, I actually think that I actually um, I trained with uh, with Berry, my hometown. I trained with Berry FC before I actually started playing semi pro and. The, and this, this is on in every, this is not about Berry FC. This is in every, every football changing room in, in the country. And I didn't do very well and played entirely within myself the entire time. Um, when I was training with them and I'm, I remain to this day convinced that that was because I, uh, didn't express myself and have the confidence that I should have done, uh, on the pitch and, and off it really. And, um, if I'd have had the experience of having to go through that, in the semi-pro world and then had that, that trade, it might've been different because I'd, I'd built this sort of carapace now of just like, yeah, whatever, nothing bothers me in, a, in, in, in that way that, that you had to. So I think it definitely in that respect, because I was so kind of not used to it uh, and I hadn't got used to, to switching that the way I behaved. Um, I think it, I think it absolutely cost me. I think that, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that I, I would have been, um, I would have played a hundred games for Man United or anything, but like it definitely in that trial, I definitely played within myself and felt that I couldn't come out and express the way I, I wanted to be and to play and be as a person. What's really interesting is that, uh, and again, this applies to a multitude of spaces, but like ultimately you're saying, you know, you, you came in as a, as a person into the culture of football, you observed it and you got into your own head um, and you didn't perform to what you believe is the best of your ability. Um, and that's just in the realm of football. Um, and obviously you still managed to, to create, create a career of yourself. You've, you've obviously done very well, but like there, there is that thing. And I think sometimes when we're trying to explain to not, not really people who are trying to understand, it's usually people that are firm. They just choose not to understand. You try to explain the impact of a, an environment on somebody. Um, because when, when the environment rules are set by you and your parents and, you know, they move you around and it's like, go work at that place and go work at that place and call this person. He'll give you a job, you know, that, that elite level of access and the next level down, which benefits from all of those things. 
And sometimes, you know, as a black person, you start explaining, you know, just like the, what, the contextually what it's like. And for me, I will never forget, like I used to go into, I worked in advertising for 15 years and I'd go into work on a, on a Monday and I hated it because I knew that the, how was your weekend questions was going to leave a mild difference between, you know, what I was doing and what they were doing. And it's not a, it's not necessarily like a malicious question and it's not something that's trying to expose anything. They're trying, actually trying to connect. But it was the lack of awareness of how different, you know, our weekends would be. And then even the desire to want to know without like, and having the skill and the language to like talk to me about my weekend without it sounding like I'm being othered was fundamentally important. And I remember, uh, ran, ran about the George Floyd time and I, I was, I was helping out an agency for a few weeks and, uh, we'd do a call every Monday. It was like nine to nine thirty. We'd all just do a little two, three minutes on what we'd done this weekend. And everyone was going around. It was like, oh, I decorated my house. Oh, I moved. Oh, you know, you know, just like, you know, I went for a run, just different things. And they were like, oh, Marvin, what did you do? And I was like, well, I was deciding whether I should go out and risk my physical health with COVID and try and protest for my also physical health yeah. around racial identity. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and yes. so, you yeah. know, and the fact is they had no idea that that could potentially even be my answer because everyone was like, oh, right, okay. Or they must have thought potentially I wasn't the, that type of person who was, you know, they probably othered the people who were on TV because the narrative yeah. of the time was like, yeah. look at these, you know, young people and black people who are, and, and, and you know, these liberals running outside to protest racial mm -hmm. justice in the middle of a pandemic. And they felt like that yeah. was the most urgent and important thing. And it's just like, we're still fighting for our lives no matter what. Um, so let's fight. Um, and, and I found, I found that really, that's a really interesting experience to kind of to sit in and live with is that often when we're trying to explain the things that happen, how things chip away at you and it creates a condition where mentally you just don't feel at your best to deliver. And that, you know, then when we show up to certain places or certain rooms or certain levels of business or whatever, um, we're already holding the weight of all of those things before we've even walked into a room. We actually are representing, you know, your whole race at that point because it's like, oh, we, brought a black person in and they weren't that good actually they're a bit they're a bit moody and you know like oh uh, yeah 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 and that so never really occurred to me it's like it's like there's that added kind of like you've got to perform that 10 percent better so that people don't go we had a black guy and they weren't that great as if like everybody's the same mm. you know it's it's um it's, it was one of the things i was thinking about how we were going to talk as well and i i, I was worried not worried but i was like i just wanted to kind of make sure that i didn't speak to you in a way that was to go, right, well, you now speak for all black people. I think that's another mistake that white people make as, as well in good conscience, you know, when they go, okay, so tell me what it's like. It's like, well, yeah, you can tell what it's like for you, but like the, it's, it's a, it's a sort of almost a disrespectful thing to assume that, that, I, I, that there's one person who's like, right, well, I'm, I'm Mr. Black person and this is what, what we all know. Um, sorry, the, I wanted to say this about football. You, you, you reminded me of something that I used to, I observed back at the time. Um, and it shows how times have changed. When everybody on that team was friends, right? Nobody was, uh, nobody was, I, I'm pleased to say, I don't, I don't have any one, I don't have an example of going, oh, it was awful. I turned up to football and there were five black lads on the team and they were treated really bad. No, not at all. They were treated, everybody was treated, and I use this in inverted commas, equally, right? You know, um, within the boundaries of, uh, of, of what society is and was. And they, we, we all turned up for training and, and your Tuesdays and Thursday nights and you'd get changed. People sort of come in arrive in dribs and drabs and, and you'd start at half seven. So if from anywhere between like quarter to seven and a half seven, there'd be two, three, four, five, six, seven people out on the field and you'd be 
pinging a ball to each other and warming up, waiting for training to start. After a few weeks, I noticed that without fail, even though everyone would have banter in the changing rooms and be and have a laugh and then probably have a drink together afterwards, um, the you'd walk out and the people would be kicking a ball in a circle and there'd be a circle of more white guys and four or five black lads. And, and I don't, if to be fair, I think that was about, um, it wasn't that the, the black lads had been told they weren't welcome to come and join in. They had, they had instinctively chosen to go and kick the ball amongst themselves. And I remember thinking, what a strange choice. And I remember sort of slightly, I guess, putting the, put, making that their problem going, what a strange choice that they decide, you know, they're more than welcome to, to why don't, why don't they join in? And I look back now and it's that whole thing about going, you know, racism is not black people's problem. It's a white person problem that affects black people. And it's like, I wish so much now that I would have just walked over and joined in with the black guys just to, just to break, to break that pattern. I think those are the moments where it's actually just, it's an almost, it's not necessarily an act of kindness in a patronizing way, but it's just an act of humanity is, and you've made an observation that there's some sort of divide around racial gender lines. And you know, by just standing there, you can create a statement and it's not mm-hmm. something that you would then turn around and be like, ah, oh, do you know what I did? It's just by just standing there. Exactly. Yeah. By being yeah. there. You, then you open up the door. I don't know if you've seen the film, Remember the Titans with um, Denzel Washington. Yeah. It's yes, a really yes, beautiful absolutely. film of like how yeah. harmony can happen by just having, mm-hmm. you know, one or two people. It doesn't even have to be the alpha person within that, you know, the lead person. It actually can just be, I think there was a guy, uh, it was called Sunshine. And I think he arrives um, from an army That's training right, camp yeah. and he throws the ball at the other quarterback, the white quarterback. And then he crosses the lines and they start you know connecting on music and then there's a larger guy that comes and he starts connecting and before you know it you visually just created like a a, 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 you know an idea of what can happen when you yeah it's the optics yeah exactly yeah yeah. Um, but but, but it's important to note though that like it's it's complicated it's complicated for white people who want to do the right thing because the, those those guys, to my knowledge, by the way, who knows? But those those guys on that football team, no one was being, you know, no one was excluding them. It was just in that moment when you would walk out and, to, and they instinctively went over to one side. And I, I don't know. I'm, I mean, I guess I do know why. I'm starting to understand why culturally that, that they felt the need to do that. But like, it's difficult because because I, I think the reason I thought, why are they doing that? Why aren't they coming over? Was because I was confused because... Because they weren't excluded in the change room and we, we all were friends and we all sort of bought each other drinks afterwards and all that kind of thing. So I don't know. I, I made the observation. I just didn't quite know how to, um, how to respond to it. But I think this is where the power of having people in your life around you to ask these questions. So like that, obviously in that moment, you've, you've missed opportunity, but now it's in your head. You, if you yeah. have proximity to people from any community or any intersection, you know, then you can ask them, you know, what would I do? Same thing mm-hmm. for women. If, if you saw someone, you know, being exactly. quite flirtatious with a woman and she didn't like it and he's grabbing her arm or whatever, you might have allowed it to go that one time, but then you'd go home and ask any woman in your life. It's like, what would you want me to do? And then you, exactly. and, but that, this is why proximity creates affinity to different groups. So if you have somebody, then you have an affinity to them because you understand what that means. Mm-hmm. You understand why those guys were playing on their own. And it, and it could have been something as simple as just safety and affinity. Mm. And, you know, yeah. normally when I, whenever we're in, you know, it's an it's a internal understood known thing within our community that if you go to somewhere and you see a black person, 
you, you know, you're trying to look for them for that affinity to be like, we can get through this together and we can figure yeah, out my, the my, landscape. My friend Simon calls it the nod. Yes. It's, it's, it's the most <laughs> the universal nod. concept. We're just, just looking uh, at you like, am I going to get it? Am I going to get it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now you understand. Yeah. I'll come and sit next yeah. to you. Uh, the other thing I wanted to yeah. say is that the, you know, even within the football context, because what's really interesting is that, because we're talking about the, the racial divide on a playing level, for example, the culture in a changing room. But there's also this other layer, which is like the manager and the chairman and what they do. And we look at, like, I saw the other day that uh, Liverpool, I don't know if it was leaked or if it was announced, but the uh, wages and salaries of their top players was announced. And yeah. you look at someone like Salah, and, and there is a divide between, I know he's African, but he's, there is a divide between Northern countries, Africa and the Sub-Saharan Africa. Even the idea of Sub-Saharan Africa is quite actually quite offensive because the whole thing is Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> um, you yeah. know, Mane was earning, I think, uh, 30% to what Salah was. I think Salah was on 285,000 a week. You're joking. And, and, I didn't and know that. was on, I think it was 90 or 100 uh, a week. And you, and you look at that, that divide. And this is where like structural things happen. Um, because ultimately, if you think about player for player, on any given day, you could swap them out and you could have a fair conversation well, as to who you would want. Even if you uh, think, even on. if you think Salah's better, he's not three times better. No. And, <laughs> and so <laughs> you, know you, know what I mean? you then look at the impact of, you know, sometimes what, how people present, they might present like it's in on the ground. Me and you are on the same team. We're having a great time, but then we both go in for contract re- renegotiations. And then, you know, mm-hmm. the feedback that the manager gets in terms of understanding you as a player, as a culture. Uh, and you see it all the time in the Premier League. And I don't want to discredit you know, if they're good or not, but there's players that are culturally very British in how they play. And that gets celebrated in a way that any other player wouldn't get celebrated. And so there's no, I always think of like, I'm going to say these people's name, but they've also very successful. So I don't want to diminish their success, but people like Mason Mount and people like um, Jordan Henderson and people like James Milner, you know, they are good players, but they're good players. They're reliable, good players. But the way they're spoken about as if they're, you know, they are the absolute affinity or the, uh, the, the, exa- the example of great leaders and great players. I think sometimes it's slightly oversold and it's really difficult how I never forget how they had, they, they, they had a snippet of Yaya Torre's commentary. Um, and how he was being spoken about over, over the seasons. And they would never talk about his intelligence. It was power. Oh yes, pace, I've heard about. Yeah, it's always yeah, all black players. It's all like, oh, like Lukaku. Oh, he's yeah. a beast. Oh, he's so strong. He's so yeah, yeah. And it's never like, oh my, he's so skillful. Yeah. When you look yeah. at Mane, he's, he's unbelievably skillful. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But also very intelligent to create the things he creates. It, it requires an element of football intelligence. And I think this is the type of the narrative that I think ultimately shapes some of the things that may happen in the actual squad level, because yeah, there may be a bit more harmony in the squad. And we've seen that with Black Lives Matter probably more than ever. We've seen players standing with the rest of their players. Um, uh, and obviously the clubs that haven't are, are the obvious clubs that we've, we've all known. Um, but like, I think, you know, what, what happens structurally in terms of, you know, coaching and management and, uh, you know, contract levels and like extensions and, you know, how people feel like people are performing and you're not understanding some of the things that may impact um, people on a, on a different level. So it's, it's really, a, it's a difficult thing. And I think what, what I'm supposed to be sharing with you is just, you know, how people show up isn't necessarily the full story, but when, when we're trying to paint this picture of how things disconnect, it's not always the person like you who might be in my team with me. There's also, then there's another level, there's a socialized level, but there's a structural level that can ultimately impact a lot of these conversations. What's really weird about that thing about Liverpool is that, um, you know, you would think that a above almost so many other things that football is a meritocracy. 
you, you know, like how, it, yeah, I don't see Mo Salah being three times better than Mane. Um, you know, I mean, I know that, I, 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 how, how could that have come about? Because does Mane have an agent that people don't respect as much? Does he have an African agent? I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. I don't know what the, I don't know what the answer is. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so then, then for for you in terms of like the things that you've seen, obviously in terms of acting, which is another another world. And I think acting has always been great at being one of the first. The acting music usually leads the way in terms of like cultural shifts. Sport does the same, uh, cultural shifts, because ultimately you're almost the stories end up creating stars and moments and narratives that shape things. So, you know, there's usually a lot more integration in acting. Have you ever observed anything in acting or in casting or roles that you've been put out for? And, you know, have you ever been gone to a, a casting for something and seen that there's black people and white people up for the same role? Or has it always, you know, those type of things I think people would never really know. <clears throat> well, it, it's an interesting, the whole, that whole kind of area is, is interesting and, and, People are trying to find their way through it now because there was a thing about four years ago, um, five years ago, that people were calling it colorblind casting in a, in a very sort of progressive way. And then, and then that changed and it was like, wait, colorblind casting is, is deeply problematic anyway, because that then you're talking about not in acknowledging a particular individual's culture and ancestry and heritage. So then it became color conscious casting, which I think is, 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 um, a much more inclusive idea. But it is funny, isn't it? Because up until relatively recently, I might have gone, yeah, I know it's really great, but like you'd, you'd want to cast this film. But the fact is historically, I mean, I, I wouldn't have made that argument because that's a, it's, you know, it's a dumb argument and nothing changes that way. But what I'm trying to get to is this idea that like, Bridgerton, for example, has completely exploded all of those myths. It's like, yeah, we'll just do a period drama and cast whoever we want, as in fact did um, Hamilton, you know? And suddenly you go, all oh, right, okay, yeah, it's entirely doable and no one needs to, no one needs to, uh, to make those excuses anymore. Now, I, I did a, I did a TV show called The Cafe that I wrote and, and, and was, I was in it and I wrote it and I, you know, cast it. And in the second series, it was set in Western Supermare in Somerset and 2010, we made it. And we were like, do you know what? It was about three generations of women trying to keep a cafe open. And it was a gentle comedy. And the second series, we were like, we, we, I can't believe that we haven't got a black character in. We really should write a black character. And we did. And I cast my, um, my friend, Cobner Holbrook Smith. Do you know him? He played, um, yeah, yeah, Cobner. Yeah. yeah. Cobner's a legend. And he played, I was in a play with him a couple of years previously and we cast him. Uh, and he was brilliant. And what we wanted to do as forward thinking liberals making this show, we wanted to, um, we were like, the thing is, there's almost like no black people in Western Supermare. So if he arrives in the cafe, there will be, somebody will, will have an opinion on that. So we have to address that. So what we had him doing, he arrives in the cafe and he's in Western Supermare and he's doing community service. Now, but that's a deliberate, like we were selling people a, a, a misdirection there because the idea is he was doing community service, but you find out in later episodes that it's not because he's, he's a criminal. It's because he beat up, I think it was like he beat up three neo-Nazis who were, who were attacking a, a someone outside a, a, a gay nightclub, right? So <clears throat> technically he's a criminal because he's doing community service. But the idea was, ah, we're going to confound your expectations. He's not what you, this is not what you think and, and, and so on and so on. 
I look back at that now and I go, I don't know. I don't know if it was the right way to go. What might have been the right way to go is just to have him come in and just be in the world, you know, and not gone, well, he's black, so we've got to act. Do you know, I wish I'd just gone, well, if West, if in Western Supermare they wouldn't have, somebody would have said something. That's their problem. No, I, I don't mean Western Supermare. If anyone's <laughs> listening from Western Supermare, I'm not slugging you off. I mean those characters. No, are, you, know, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Never got Western Supermare. No, they'd be very good to be Western Supermare. Do, do you know what I mean? And, and that was tw- 11 years ago now. And I look yeah. back and I go, I don't know if it was the right, it was certainly the most well-intentioned. Um, and I don't think it was, I don't think it was, it's not for me to say what's offensive, but I don't think it was offensive, but I wish that instead we'd have just not even made any deal of it and he'd have come in and had a whole different storyline so that we didn't have to have that acknowledgement. That's a common thing. And so, you know, how intentional are you with casting? How intentional are you with storylines and contextualizing people? Do you want to be like, hey, look, we're addressing this thing or do you just want it just to be slipped in and be normal? So I think for every Bridgerton, I think there's like the other side of it is like a Scarlett Johansson who believes she can play any person in, on the planet mm. and it's perfectly fine. Um, and I think, you know, and, and I think in essence, I, I can understand the argument from an actor's point of view in terms of like wanting to play anything. You want to be able to play a mermaid. You want to be a voice in a, you know, in a cartoon. You want to play any woman of any kind. But I also then think it's like the impact on the people watching and the people impact of the conversation that is being driven, it was incredibly self-centered to only consider your desire to act above everything else that was being said and done. And I think there'll be plenty of time, you know, Scarlett will, will work until the very last day that she chooses to. Um, and so, you know, she can pick anything she wants to. She's not on the realm of like struggling actor mode where, you know, she's talking about her freedom to perform any context that she wants. And I was like, what a fantastic joy and privilege that you can just play an East Asian woman in a film, knowing that there are East Asian women who credibly could play themselves very, very well. And I think, you know, when we're talking about an attempt to do something thoughtful, you may get it wrong. And that's, you know, that happens. And I think also just like, I I call it being about being on the court. If you're on the court on the issue of racism, you may make mistakes, but who are you when you get caught with the mistake? And like, did you do enough due diligence to ensure that you didn't? You know, Covenant is a, a great guy. So I assume he had some sort of viewpoint and input on it. He probably bought into the idea on some level. So therefore you've spoken to him about it or you may have spoken to someone about it and landed at the conclusion. And it may not have worked, but I think once you put your hand up and be like, look, we tried and it was the wrong thing to try, but my next attempt will be more based on what I've learned and understood from that. And you just keep going. That's really, really powerful. But I think when you just own this kind of like, space and you just decide on behalf of everybody else what your your pro- approach is going to be i think that's when it becomes really problematic because we would never do that for for gender we would never do that around lgbtqia plus we would actually listen to the community and take a, a stance and if you get it wrong as if you did you drop something in your mum's house you'd be like oops i'm so sorry and you'll clean it up you wouldn't just be like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah. i was getting my own food and so i was getting my own food yeah so give me credit <laughs> clean that up mom yeah no i know i know i, I think you know people say that people I think trot this out as as too easily as an excuse and I think it's not an excuse but it's also but it, it can be context like the world people say the world was a different place now that only goes so far because you can't have been mistreating people because the world's a different place but you can I, when I look back, back at that at that idea with Co- casting Covenant and, and writing that storyline um, I don't think I, I don't think it was offensive and it was certainly well intentioned but but also the world was a different place and Covenant did buy into that very happily he was like yeah it's lovely because I get to come in and I get to show and and 
certainly Cobner didn't flag it up. Now, it's only then when you look back, you go, well, maybe Cobner didn't flag it up because at the time we lived in a world in 2010 where he was like, this isn't really something we flag up. We just we just go, thanks for your good intentions and we take the money and we pay our mortgage and we go, thank you. You know, um, and it's that kind of thing as well that, you ha- that I'm tr- I think well-intentioned white people have to, have to now think and just go talk to people like, talk to people like you without going, please teach me about what race is. Do you know what I mean? You've got to try and find the way to, to, because the problem is, is if, if they don't, then it's not enough to go, well, I think it's awful now, but, and then, but I, I better not say anything because otherwise nothing changes. Right. So yes, the world was a different place. I don't think we did anything massively offensive, but um, I probably would, would think differently about that now, or even consult, cast somebody first and then consult them about how they thought about it first. I think we'd written the the part first. Um listen, there's another thing and I don't want anyone to sort of pick up on this and then um and then uh have a massive headline about it. Um but yeah, there's another thing about casting that that we should talk about but we, I I almost don't want to get into too much because it's a uh, I think there's a whole hour on this and I think it's a whole different conversation. I don't know if you remember um, but there was this outcry when about five years or four years ago, there was a short 25 minute comedy short uh, made by Sky where Brian Cox played Marlon Brando, Stocker Channing played Elizabeth Taylor and Joseph Fiennes played Michael Jackson in 2001 on September the 11th. Well, I produced that. I cast it. Well, I, I was part of that decision. Now, Clearly, that was a terrible idea. But first of all, it was co- it felt complicated because, I, in fact, to be honest, it didn't even even feel complicated. Michael Jack. I mean, I understand now. I'm not, I'm not necessarily asking you to explain. I now I, I I listened to everybody when they were furious. But like it, what it was sort of best intentions in that like M- Michael Jackson in 2001 was a was a complicated individual to represent, and. Um, in the way he looked, he was he, his face was white and so on and so on. So we asked casting directors, we asked we asked everyone, and at no point, like casting big big casting directors gave us lists of who could play him. Not a single black person on that list, not a single mixed race person on that list, and that's really really interesting and entirely wrong. But the world was a different place, and now five years later, you go, you can't do that, but. I guess before I ask you, I'll tell you something that, that annoyed me about that whole thing was that whole episode. And this is the first time I've ever talked about it. There was a massive outcry. Two things. Uh, well, the main thing about the massive outcry was this is a disgrace. Pull it. Don't show the, don't show the, the show. And that's fine. Uh, that, you know, n- no problem. But there were a lot of people left confused, a lot of people in power, in casting. Remember I said like the big casting directors, a lot of people in production and and even to an extent me going, I don't quite know. I know that this is wrong, but I don't quite know why. And I don't. And the, the problem is, is because what what should have happened was there should have been probably a, a online sit down not even debate because no one's going to go i think i'm right tell me what but people might go please tell me from your point of view exactly why this this is offensive because if we don't nothing gets better right no, you know it, it takes another 5 years before anything kind of changes so i i, I I'm, I'm not saying so, so saying to you what i did wrong but like 
um, because I know, but like, what, what's your take on that whole thing? I think, I think what's really interesting, because I remember it at the time and I didn't internalize too much of it because I think one of the things I realized as a black person is that every week there's a new episode of ridiculousness regarding our lived experience. Well, what I will say about that is that I think if you think about Michael Jackson, he, he is unquestionably a black man. And I think if you think about the era which he grew up with and the era which he became successful in uh, and what the context was for him, it could be partially health related. It could be, you know, in terms of how he then developed that onwards, it definitely is about, you know, his proximity to whiteness in terms of what he then evolved himself to look into. And in, in many ways that that's, you know, that's a, that's a mental challenge. That's a, that's, that is somebody that isn't okay with how they are and who they are and what they look like and what they represent. And I, and I think that, you know, if you think about the context in which Michael Jackson exists in and the level of success and fame he got to, it, in many ways, the, the erasure of him as a black man, as that person in that moment is incredibly problematic. It's almost like he's a symptom of the structure, which we're constantly trying to articulate to non-black people that it has an incredible and profound amount of impact. So think about the messaging he received. Again, take your football analogy into, into, into account. And he, that's him in the music context. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skide trætte af alle de der podcasts og forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmagle. 
are, are what and their lens in terms of what the world is, is what then becomes. So there's an, a, a talent agent, a studio, production, an actor. That is now their lens about what is possible and what isn't possible in a production. So, you know, asking them and the children of them or the, you know, affiliates of them about something like this, you're probably going to get versions of the same answer. But also, as you know, a lot of these kind of industries, the same thing with music, is operated on fear. Because nobody wants to put their hands up and be like, this is a really bad idea. It happens in advertising in my industry. You know, there'll be content. We looked at Pepsi when they did the advert with um, Kylie Jenner, when she was like handing Pepsi out to police brutality, you know, police who were brutalizing protesters. It just was like, why did no one just be like, that's a terrible visual representation. And it's because everybody in that chain from Pepsi down to, you know, the advertising agency, down to the people who even featured in it, nobody thought that this looks nuts. And then you think how many people were being complicit? It's not, and, and again, inaction is still a really massive problem because, you know, you had the well intentions and you probably would have heard the criticism if somebody said, that's an absurd idea. An alarm might have gone off in, in your head. But the fact is because of the, the place, the space you held in terms of pushing for, you as a decision maker on the production, people may not have challenged you or asked a question and so sometimes like just by being a white male regardless of what the actual content of your character is it, it feeds into what people just assume you will be like and they just don't want to go up against it because if you ever did was become an arsehole and then turn your power onto an individual who challenged you what the con consequences will be so i'm not saying that every single time these things happen it's evil white man does something and where are all the consequence of it? Sometimes the culture is just created by a consistent log of events that happen that nobody, people just want to pay their rent. And sometimes you don't want to be the pro-black, pro-woman, pro-LGBTQI play plus on the set. You just want to act and you want to go home like other people do. And I feel like this condition can only be stopped by those people. Like you have to like, you know, sometimes even me as a business leader, I have to stop and go to my team and be like, if we are doing something wrong, say something. Because <laughs> again, me, even as, as a male, as a black male, in the context of blackness, we are the top of the, you know, ecosystem in terms of blackness. And so sometimes L LGBTQI voices or disabled voices or female voices aren't heard. And so if I don't go back in and be like, you can challenge me on this and make that environment safe for that to happen the continuation of these problems will continue. It's, it's interesting. I'm thinking about it now. And what it is, I think, is that... So, so Joseph Fiennes as well uh, should, should, should get a mention here to, to be like, when he took that on, uh, I guess what I'm just trying to say is everybody had not even the best intentions. Nobody even thought that this was going to be a problem, right? It would never occur to anyone. And that is exactly what you're talking about. That's the problem. Or if it did occur to people, they thought, I'd better not say anything because I just want to take my paycheck and go home, right? But, you know, I certainly want to make sure that, you know, people aren't listening thinking, well, what was Joseph Fiennes thinking? He wasn't thinking anything. We, everybody just thought in 2001, Michael Jackson was, was, appeared to be white. And actually, there was this very early on, there was this one idea of going, well, it'd be really, really insulting to like cast a black guy and then put white makeup on them. So we were like, oh, we can't do that. I look back now and you kind of think, maybe we should. Maybe we should have talked to somebody actually, but we didn't think it was that much of a big deal. Anyway, so what's becoming clear to me now in a way that nobody's ever really expressed before, and I think 
I can take away from this and hopefully this helps people, you know, every, every one of your black listeners knows this already, but any white listeners might not know this. And this is why I'm hoping that this is useful for us. It had never occurred to any of us on that show that, that Michael Jackson may have looked, appeared to be white in 2001. And we talk about mental health much, much in, in a much more open way now than we did even five years ago. So there's that too, right? So, Maybe it was his mental health. Maybe it was his proximity to whiteness that made him feel like he had to to, to change his appearance. To us, he, he you know he's just this absolute legend that was oh, a bit bonkers, and now look what he looks like, right? But it never occurred to us, I suppose, that to to millions, billions of black people during the seventies and eighties, um, when when there were f- so few icons, you know, when there were so few people to kind of go, that's my hero. He was, he was this black guy moving, at the, not even the, moving amongst the, the, the sort of elite circles. He was the top of the top of the tree. And when you, I guess that's a part of white privilege is when you grow up in everyone you see, every superhero, everyone, you know, this is way before Black Panther, every superhero and everyone you see, um, apart from Blade, I guess, but, um, uh, people don't count you know, him as the is, first Marvel, by the way. They feel like that, that was like Blade. It was great. And then it's over there. And then like Marvel. I know, came. It's, mad. it's like he made Marvel yeah, exactly. possible. Yeah. Blade is Marvel. Okay. Let's not see yeah. But, um, I guess, you know, all of my heroes, or you Indiana Jones, Arnold Schwarzenegger, whatever, I've grown up and all my heroes are, look, look like me. Well, not so much Schwarzenegger, but <laughs> I'm working on it. Um, <laughs> I've heard, I read, I read, I read the articles. Ways. Yeah, sorry, I saw the pictures. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so to, to then, yeah, I guess it never, it, it didn't occur to any of us that to take somebody who, not just people are like, well, I like him because he's a hero of mine who's like represented in certain respects, one of the only handful of heroes that, that black culture had. Yeah, it, it, it never occurred to any of us. And, and I think, um, you know, I've, I've, I've known vaguely as I've tried to think about these things that that's what it is. But yes, it's, it's that kind of like, it's too important to, yeah, it was too important a symbol to, to, to co-opt, I guess, if that if that's the right way of putting it. So yeah, I mean, I um I didn't kind of come on here with the intention of going uh uh like mea culpa or anything, and I hope that's not what it is. But it's like I think that that whole issue was never really was never really um properly uh, unpacked, you know. And I hope I hope it, I hope it sort of has been a little bit more because because if you don't unpack these things and kind of go okay, well let's figure this out, then nothing gets better. And the thing is, is that I, in many ways, yeah, because it's always interesting to, when, when these experiences happen and there, and there is a, a, you know, a, a rapid response to something that happens, uh, it's considered called anti-blackness. And, and again, it's like when these things happen, you very rarely get a chance to actually connect with someone who's involved in it. And, and when you do get a chance, it's actually just a really good opportunity to hear the thought process because often, we, when, when things are reported, it's always hugely structural. And sometimes it's almost painted as if, um, from within our community, as if there is like architects of this ridiculousness. Cause, you know, some, like, you know, you hear about Gucci and they do like a Jamaica ju- jumper, which is not the Jamaica flag. It's actually Rastafarianism and they call it the Jamaica jumper and they sell it for 2000 pounds. And we're just like, what the fudge are you doing? Whose decision making is this? And sometimes these things happen so often, these mishaps culturally you just start to just get you you don't even bother to dig into why 
It's now just like nobody's listening to the things that we're doing. And obviously, because understanding you now and listening to you for the last hour in terms of like what your experience is and what your observations are and then connecting it, I think people can also see sometimes these are just human errors that then get structuralized um, at a really large level. But I think, you know, now that you have the awareness of how these things can be seen or portrayed or inclusive. You talked about the Cobner example. You talked about speaking to people outside. I think there's almost like a, a moment where you can then become a beacon of that thinking in any room that you're in. So if, you, if people are representing blackness in a way, like, uh, you know, you can, you can actually just challenge and be like, I don't think that's right. And I think that will cause a lot of challenges because as much as acting is progressing, there are still so many gaps and there's still decisions being made without people of color in, um, or, or the rep, or the intersection of which they're trying to represent in. And then that creates significant amount of challenges. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> my big takeaway from talking to you is, is that, um, well, what you just said then about that example, the Michael Jackson thing was like, you know, what, what the thought process was. And actually what's, what's most interesting is that there, there wasn't a thought process, you know, like it was, you've, you've said it's like inaction can often be, you know, a, a real problem because nobody in that cast or crew or even high up at Sky, you know, nobody was, um, uh, anything other than, than well-intentioned. It just wasn't thought about. And that's, if that's what changes, then, then good. You know, that's, that's why we're having this conversation. That's part of it. And, and one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was, um, because since last year, since George Floyd, and I've been trying to think about what allyship means. And I sort of used to think it means, well, you know, I've got loads of black friends and I'm not racist and, and, um, and I, I, try and cast them in, you know, in 2010 in a show, I wrote, I wrote a part for a black person for that very reason, blah, blah, blah. But no, it's not, that's not right. It's not, and and it's okay that it's okay that, um, that, you know, you're trying, but it, this feels like a really good moment to learn and do things better. Um, which is why I wanted to talk to you, but, and also <clears throat> because like you say, the more, the more white people, especially white people in positions of power, go okay. Well, let's let's figure this out. Let's talk about this. Then hopefully, the, it it starts to the the dam starts to burst or whatever analogy you want to use. Um, it, it must be exhausting. You know what you just said. It's like sometimes you just go. It just some some many of these happen. It happens every day. Then you just get kind of fatigued with it all, and then it's just it's easier just to. I, I think I think the key or is just the, be angry all the time, and I, yeah. I think I think the key thing is what we're what we're asking for in response, and I said this in the beginning, is just that humility of the error. And I think so many errors happen because, you know, if again, if you're on the court and everyone's running, running around a football pitch, you're going to bump into someone. Now you can sit there and be like, get out of my way. Or you can sit there and be like, oh, I didn't mean to bump into you. And you can be more conscious of where you're running next time. And I think quite often what happens, especially around racial identity, there's this almost just like upright denial that anything is any different. And we've seen the conversation. We've seen the race report that came out last week. There's all these, you know, Piers Morgan two weeks ago. There's all these huge things that seem to happen that drive a significant amount of you know, insight. And again, like, and, and this is again, reference in terms of like the, the Michael Jackson casting is that when, when Meghan Markle was first, you know, introduced uh, as a partner for Harry and this morning is doing a piece on lookalikes, they just chose a white girl. They just didn't, they didn't understand the importance of choosing someone with the correct ethnicity. They just put a ginger man with a white brunette and was just like, that's them. They look just like them, don't they? Yes, they do. 
and we're, we're just sitting there at TV and just thinking, this is why this show, this show is just so outdated and it, ha- it hasn't grown up. It hasn't matured. It hasn't updated itself. It still lives in that bubble. Um, and I think those types of things happen so often in terms of just representing actual people authentically. And all it really requires is to actually communicate to those people, have those people in the room, have those people um, have a, a chance to feed back into the process. And because again, when you have the power, you don't want to relinquish that power because then, then even you as a casting director saying that you have to defer to somebody else, how, you know, that removes power from you as an individual. It's this very selfish notion of like, if I am not the be all expert on this subject, then, you know, people will just go to the other person next time and just ask that person. And they never consider that actually you have enough power and experience and access to be able to do your job at a high level and still use people to leverage that insight. And in no other industry would you do that. You know, you, would, you wouldn't as a scientist ignore a biologist when you're trying to change one idea into another and just be like, oh no, we don't want to get a biologist because then everyone's going to invest in biologists. It's like, no, you say the mission is the most important thing. And if we want to make an incredible piece of content that everybody wants to love, watch and share, we need to have these people around in the room to, to pose that question. Here at BQ, we've launched our brand new website, DIY.ie. Browse thousands of products available for home delivery and one hour click and collect. Visit DIY.ie today. You can do it when you BQ it. Delivery and click and collect available on selected products and locations. Restrictions apply. Delivery charges may apply. See DIY.ie. This idea about allyship is such an important, it's, it's a really important thing. And, and I suppose I'll read them out. And if anything lands to you, I'd love to hear your thoughts on them. But I think like when, when to, to be an ally is about taking the struggle on as your own, which is really important in terms of understanding that something isn't right and owning it as in I can do something about it and looking for opportunities where you can add value um, or change the conversation or challenge things. And I think we've had some examples already today. I think transferring, you know, your privilege um, over to others. I think that, you know, again, that's like in that, in that particular role, you know, is there a thing with Cobner, for example, that you could have, that, that, that you could have platformed and said, actually, we're going to make Cobner a, a co-producer on this. And that would have helped him with a producer credit, but it also would have given him a chance to at the table fairly say like what he feels is going to drive this episode and make it land in a way that our audiences would have had affinity to it and come and watched it. You could have increased your audience pool. Uh, and then the next one is about amplifying the voices of oppressed people before your own. So again, like, you know, platforming people to your platforms and just saying, come and have a free conversation about this. Um, you know, I remember at the time there was a, a podcast that reached out to me, uh, quite a prominent podcast. And they were like, Marvin, we'd love you to come on. Um, and then I was like, yeah, let's catch up next week. And then that week happened. And then because the news had changed, all of a sudden it was slightly less important and I never heard from them again. Um, and you know, that type of thing is where we, you know, that trust and affinity gets broken, but you know, it's so powerful. I think even us, we, we've platformed challenges around women. We've had women come and just talk freely and just post a podcast with none of us on it just using our audience to go out and have this conversation about women. We did the same for uh, with Pride Month. And we just sometimes allowing people to have space on your platform just to say the things that are ultimately important is incredibly powerful. Um, and then acknowledge that even though you feel pain, the conversation is not about you. For a start, that's why I, I'm, I'm glad that we're talking and I wanted to talk to you because like, um, uh, it's all very well when it's all happening, Black Lives Matter and the protests are happening going, hey, should we 
you know, is there any way I could support this to talk? But that's why it was a year later. And I was like, listen, just, it was a real offer. I'd love to talk to you. So, you know, yay me. But more importantly, um, if you, if you'd like to come and talk about this stuff on my podcast as well, it doesn't have to be like, uh, you know, I come to talk to a black guy because it's important to talk about this. It's like, well, let's get Marvin on to talk to me and Will, you know, me and Will reach, um, uh, I'm, I'm sure there are some black guys that listen to us, black people that listen to us, but I think that our audience is pr- predominantly, I guess, actually, I don't quite know what our audience is, but I guess it's predominantly, uh, um, uh, white working class guys who, who grew up watching our show. So, you know, I think this is really, it would be great to, to, if, if that's the kind of thing that you're interested in when we, um, get a couple of episodes down the line, I think we absolutely should. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. I think, I think the, and then the other thing is, um, number four is about when we say acknowledge and acknowledge that the, even though you feel pain, the conversations about you again, even if we take it out of the allyship as the concept is anybody. So if you think about, you know, going to someone and someone saying, I've got cancer and we talked about this earlier. And then you saying like, well, I thought I had cancer once. And it's like, you would never do that. You would never center their pain as your own. You would hundred percent platform and allow them to have that feeling, express their concerns and then try to reassure them the best you can. And I think often when we talk about racism, it's like, it's never to be like, oh, and I was hurt once too. So, you know, being fat is like the same as being called the N-word because, you know, I can't help my weight. You can't help being black. You know, e- even just in conversation, it's just like clunky. So it's never to do those types of things. And I think stand up even when you feel scared. And I think, again, this is about, you know, the power you may have internally. And again, this doesn't make people devoid of your own personal things. Cause you, you know, if you, if you don't have confidence in general and every day is a battle for you in terms of confidence, cause you don't like something about yourself or you've been bullied as a child, you know, it isn't, doesn't make it just easy because you're white that you can stand in that, in that room and say something. But what you don't realize is, is how powerful your voice in that conversation is. And actually you can not only change the outcome of that thing. So you, the, co- the cost of you being brave internally is, is a lot. And we're acknowledging that, but the power in which you have to drive the conversation or change the mood around anything by just putting your hand up and asking the question. And it could be something very subtle is that, you know, is, 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 is that right? Do you think that's going to work? Put poses a question to the whole room and be like, I feel like that could be really problematic. You know, just a sentence that you can give that you can arm yourself with that drives the conversation is really, really helpful about how we can kind of challenge the things that we think are happening around us. Um, and then the next one is about, um, uh, own your mistakes and decenter yourself. So I think this is a, a common thing with people is like this opinion culture, the debate culture, which is where, you know, people are talking and they, they have a debate and they have an opposing view and they feel like if you disagree with with the person you're disagreeing with them and actually like you you don't own your views your view is just a viewpoint if i think i'm going to vote labor and you think we should vote conservative i don't want to put that in your name in case that comes to sound bite but i don't know <laughs> don't get in trouble um so the point is if your views could be economically conservative but then ultimately you could be more um uh, of a socialist in terms of your day-to-day interactions and you know if your view on economic conservatism is a thing it shouldn't then mean that you are and it shouldn't be the end of the conversation and our ability to share space. It's really about making sure that whenever we own a mistake or anything we've said that may, um, you know, challenge somebody else or, or impede somebody else's progress, that actually it's not always just about what you feel and what your beliefs are. It's like your beliefs are here. My beliefs are here. We compare them. They're different. And then we, you know, go our separate ways. We don't have to make them like I disagree with you. Um, and I think the last thing is that understanding your education is up to you and no one else. And I think you've mentioned this a few times. Like we, we're having this conversation. So in the realm of this conversation, 
I've already accepted that there may be some questions that you want to ask and you can ask them because you've accepted the invite. There's a whole nother thing is if you message me in my inbox and be like, Marvin, could you explain structural racism to me, please? Uh, I really don't understand. That's a completely different way to approach it. And now we have this relationship. If you just wanted to like, Marvin, actually, I do have a question. And, and you know, we are doing this production and we are speaking to these people. What do you think would be a really good way to do it? We now have, you know, proximity. We have an affinity now. So it becomes less of a labor to have that conversation. But I think, you know, these are the types of, when we talk about guide to allyships, those are the seven steps. And we'll make sure we publish them and share them alongside this episode. Cause I think it's really, really important that we all start to dig in and understand. Uh, when I was going through that, did anything come up for you? Yeah. Um, loads. I mean, for a start, it all makes a lot of sense, um, which is a good start. Um, yeah, I think, you know, owning your mistakes is a difficult one, uh, not a difficult one, but owning the mistakes, the, the things that, the things that, I think hold people back are owning mistakes because they're afraid if they own up to mistakes, then they'll get in trouble in some way. Like, you know, um, you don't want to like, I was not nervous, but I was like, it's a little daunting to come on here and talk to you about any of this stuff. And I, I had no idea what we were specifically we we're going to talk about, but you're just like, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a couple of sound bites here and then, and then I'll get, a few people on, on Twitter, who knows what they'll be saying. I'll be accused of virtue signaling and I'll be accused. And, but you know what? Who cares? It's, I think people are, I think people are a little bit, um, I think well-intentioned people might be a little bit, uh, wary of, of either owning mistakes because of what they think the consequences might be or sticking their head or, or, you know, holding up their hand and going, should we, can we talk about this or whatever? So I'm hoping that by doing this, um, it's, you know, I'm, trying to sort of say this is something that we can do and, and hopefully more people will do. I actually, I'm, I'm going to dig somebody out here, um, somebody in the whole world who will never know me and I'll never know him, but I just feel like it's such a shame. This is a bit of an abstract one here, but when Colin Kaepernick got down on, on one knee that first time, and that was a while ago now, this is way before Black Lives Matter, and then he was, fi- yeah, Colin Kaepernick still doesn't have, still doesn't play in the NFL. I mean, by the way, that's, unbelievable but I had this weird this daydream fantasy of how great it would have been can you imagine if after it was like if you you know if you kneel down at the national anthem you'll be thrown out of the stadium and all this and I think it was Trump that said it on can you imagine how extraordinary the world would have been even just for a few days if Tom Brady had got on one knee in the next national anthem yeah can you imagine how big that would have been because because Tom Brady's bulletproof he couldn't have been fired no one's going to fire Tom Brady no one's and that was like Dude, you could have, you could have in one in one movement, you could have made such a difference. And um, yeah, I think if we if we feel that moment, I think if you're an ally, you want to be an ally, and you feel that moment, then you've got to try and seize it. I guess yeah. is what I'm trying to say. I, I, look, I think I think the sad thing is that he's not a sad thing, but this is his choice. But like he he was a Trump supporter, he believed in many of the ideas and the and the miscommunications around what Colin was doing. And I think yeah, you know there there are. There are, there are, there, yeah. you know, racism could I mean, be never going to happen. Yeah, racism could be solved very, very quickly. It's, it's, it's not actually a very complex scenario, and it, and it just requires, you know, people to be present to the things that they're saying, doing, uh, and why things are the way they are. But also, it's just like it's so centered in how people feel about themselves, and almost like, you know, we're better. The idea that, like, you know, you could be white working class, and I actually could earn more money than you, but somehow you still feel pride of being white British and how having Anglo-Saxon is like the premier experience. Um, but you could have literally, you know, you could be hand to mouthing it every single month, and I feel I feel like that divide that has been created um, is so illogical. 
and so unworkable. And we probably have way more in common. You know, I grew up on a, on a state in East London uh, and it was very white working class on the estate. I think I was one of three families that were of color um, uh, on the estate. And we had so much in common on a human level, but there was, there was almost this like superiority of, you know, yeah, but we're white. And, you know, if I, if I ever got my moment in the sun, I could, have, I could assimilate to, you know, how whiteness works easier than anybody else could. And I'm just waiting for my moment. And, you know, some people felt I just didn't need to because they felt superior. We won the war. We won the 1966 World Cup. You know, th this is what the, like, the pride oh of it God, was. We used to we dominate war, these man. countries. Yeah. Why so, is the country so obsessed with the war? It's so weird. <laughs> I, you know, and, and, and look, it's, it's, it, they actually believe they ended fascism on their own. It's just like there's lots of narratives. The US think they won the war on their own. The English think they won the war on their own. Depending on who you speak to, it all happened mm -hmm. because of, you know, their decision to end these things. And they completely ignore yeah. the challenges and the pain that they cause as Britain going around the world and colonizing pretty much every black and brown country, uh, or at least somewhere on every single continent. It just, they're never. Well, it's like considered. we said earlier, you know, it's, it's not taught in school. If, if it was taught in schools, it'd be, it'd be a whole different ball game, I'm sure. You know, I just, a genuine, Here's a, here's a thing where <clears throat> me and my missus, who's American, I'm, I'm over in Florida with her now. And um, we went to Ireland uh, about two years ago, something like that. And we we drove, you know, across Ireland, Dublin, across Ireland, down the West Coast of Ireland. And we did a few tours and whatever. And what was fascinating to me is that they talked about uh, Oliver Cromwell. And it only occurred to me literally two years ago that... In in my history, my GCC history back back then, Oliver Cromwell was talked about not as a hero because it was more of a kind of a neutral, you know, history was more neutral. It's certainly about the Civil War because, you know, Charles I, Oliver Cromwell, it's like th there's no clear, like, good guy, bad guy like I, I, there is in, like, the war. But um, he was sort of, like, described as a sort of well-meaning patriot. Go to Ireland. They don't think that at all. He was appalling just murdered hundreds of thousands of them never taught in in english history classes and i just think that could make a massive difference if we sort of had some sense of ownership of what of what having an empire meant and what we did and what our history is because we genuinely i say we i growing up as a you know when i was young white british lad I thought we were, I thought we were a decent bunch. Like I was like, historically, we won the war and we, we're the good guys, right? And I don't think it's psychologically damaging to, to generations to, to learn the truth about what happened in the past. I don't think that's, I mean, you know, you look at Germany and they've got incredibly progressive liberal society. I don't think it's the, a, a terribly bad thing. I, and I think absolutely in many ways, because you're right, you've seen how countries have rebranded. Belgium's another one. If you think about Leopold and what he did in Congo, he actually killed more people than Hitler did. And so, you know, how they've rebranded themselves, they've actually ignored large parts. But when, when George Floyd was happening, people were tearing down some of the posters of their previous leaders, posters, their statues of previous leaders, because it was incredibly problematic to celebrate those people and after what they had done. And this connection to people historically who did things that nobody in the present state would do is because the true power and again you know the UK is trying to be a mini US in terms of like the level of patriotic uh, uh, sentiment that they're pushing into us and it just doesn't fly because it hasn't won it is never really landed like even the British flag compared to the English flag has different connotations and when you see them what they were used for the tools that they were used for for so long but if you, you, there's no way that you can continue using the flag in a way that conservative party, every time they speak on TV, they have a flag behind them. It triggers a whole bunch of people because you've never repaired 
with those people what the flag has mean before you try to make it up and hold it out as the symbol. And, and that's a really important part of it is the repair process has to happen in terms of this on a social level, but also on a structural level. It has to happen on both levels before people can move on. And I, I you know, two weeks ago, we spoke to David Lammy about the vision for Britain and we couldn't, we couldn't land on anything. It was the most frustrating conversation. I felt like we had the brains to do it. We had a desire to do it, but nobody could identify what is Britain trying to breathe right now. And we're in this kind of stuck place of, you know, being a, almost like a failed state. We're behaving like a failed state. We have a great opportunity in terms of what Britain stands for and what Britain can create to actually unite a lot of people. And it all starts in language, all of it. It starts in language. It talks about, it starts with how we yeah. talk about each other. Well, we're stuck because everybody's looking back challenges. We're, we're, everyone's obsessed with British exceptionalism. Everyone's obsessed with like, well, in the war, we had an empire. It's like people, people who weren't part of any of those things have this weird fantasy idea of what it is. And they look back and hark back and go, we need to be great. It doesn't mean anything. It's very difficult to plan for the future when you're always looking back over your shoulder. Um, you know, America and Britain, if I'm honest, both have this suffer from their own exceptionalism. I think where, where the challenge lies is that if you think about even for the black community and even the South Asian community, I think 46% of all black people are in London. Uh, so there's a socioeconomic South London, South, uh, North and South divide. And so imagine if you empower a whole generation, you're, you're, you're basically the benefits of that will be black and brown people is because ultimately the North South divide, but then, then a class issue needs to be addressed. Why the North of England isn't be getting the investment? Why we haven't found, you know, industry or we haven't found a, you know, a vision for the North of England and how we regenerate it. Cause then, you know, you start looking at the conservative party and you start like, well, you've been in power for 15 years. What have you done for the North of England? If you don't feel good about your experience. So it's really important. The divide is not necessarily about race. Race is just a tool that continues to divide. This is my opinion. And so if you, if you actually remove race, then if you're in a small town, England, yes, you feel like your life isn't great, but you can still look and be like, ah, oh, there's them. You have a person in your mind, you vision like, you know, there's a culture war and there's no culture war. Like I've, I've never, I've never even, I've never even experienced any idea of a culture war or, you know, them and us. And it's just us. It's us people who do have and people who don't have people just who are. Just on Twitter. Yeah, it's just, it's just an absolute Just on Twitter ecosystem. and LBC calling. Yeah, and they do very well from it. It's one more, one more point about, um, uh, I like the idea I've reframed this as like, help me, I'm white. Um, but um, <laughs> It's really hard for you. There's a, um, uh, yeah, I know. You don't, listen, walk him out of my shoes, man. When's it going to be our time? <laughs> um, now! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been my time for thousands of years. Um, uh, hundreds, certainly. Um, uh, I've got two um, mixed race friends. By the way, I don't know if my terminology is uh, because I, I try to keep up with terminology, but if I've said anything like offensive, then please do excuse me and do feel free to correct me. I've got no, um, I won't be like offended if you go, you're not supposed to say mixed race. But um, uh, unless you do, I'll, I'll continue. Um, so I have- dual, dual heritage, it depends. Dual, dual, dual heritage is probably better. Okay. So I have two dual heritage friends. Um, and both of them, uh, different backgrounds. One I used to play football with, one's a, a, my best friend now. And, um, both of them have adopted an attitude in life, which is that, uh, they, they almost are like, Oh, you know, 
sort of almost n- not Thatcherism because they're not they're not Thatcherites, right? But like this idea of going take your own personal responsibility and don't complain about institutional racism and like you'll succeed if whatever. Now my take on that is. Well, look, that might work for you, but if there's a system that's horribly unbalanced, then it still needs to be corrected. Um, I, I'm asking you be- what, what your thoughts are on that because I know that it makes it makes white people who are feeling um, uncomfortable that they're part of a system that, that creates disparity uh, of power of, of you know power and, and societal imbalance um, and oppression. It makes them feel better to hear dual heritage friends or black friends talk in that way. And I guess I'm sort of saying that's, that's not that it it shouldn't, that's not the answer. I think, I think it's really interesting because what, 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 what actually happens is so the ideology of capitalism creates this anyway. And then underpinning that is masculinity. And so when you put those two things together, it's almost like masculinity is a way of defending yourself against any idea of weakness and it, and it's a, it's a and masculinity can live in women as well. It's not just universally a man thing. And so you know this idea about what impacts you and what shapes your narrative. Some people just refuse to have any narrative attributed to them, and they have the mental capacity, the privilege, the disconnection to their emotions to really just drive through this idea that nothing impacts me. You can't make me a victimized black person. I am a success because of it. And it, and it always comes down to this, always this proximity to power in terms of what you've experienced or how disconnected you are to your actual feelings. You know, if you, the things that we talk about microaggressions and it's not really even microaggression, it's just aggressions. But these things that tiny things that happen to you and build up over a period of time, if you're in tune, if you're an empath and you feel and someone talks about your hair, the way you speak, the way you walk, the way you dress, you're a mandingo, you know, these little comments that happen that are relatively well-meaning or they might be misconstrued or they could be just malicious. But, you know, these things happen all the time. What comes out of an empath is that I've had enough. And they can see a limit to one of these interactions. These start to impact how you feel, very similar to how you talked about being on the football field. And I think when we talk about then the other person is the person who creates that culture. And again, the the people, if you even ask the question about the men who created the culture that you walked into, who are they? Where did they come from? What was their story? And you start to really dig into this idea that there will be people in the black community who do not believe that they're a victim of anything because they figured out a way to survive this environment. And so then they think, actually, they become a proponent of it. They become somebody who perpetuates the environment because they think, well, you're not a man if you can't survive this because I survived it and I'm a man. And what we're saying is, is that actually not everyone is built like that. And we actually don't want everyone to be built like that. We want people to be who they are and be able to survive the environments that we put them in. This idea about capitalism, meritocracy, you know, survivors of the fittest is a very unhealthy idea. It's been hyper masculine. It's been hyper capitalized. It's been to a point that it comes at the destruction of so many people. And so when we're talking about how we want to live, I want to be able to either tune into the the nth degree of capitalism, become a billionaire, but I also want to be able to not do that. And I want to become a nurse. I want to care for people. And I don't want to be destroyed by the person who is at the top of capitalism in terms of what I want to be. And I think that's where we are today. You know, the NHS is being run to the ground and, you know, and they, we clap for them all year and they got a 1% pay crease. That, that for me doesn't even make sense. And so this, this is where, you know, I don't want to discredit someone, you know, dual heritage person who's had the own lived experience they have a reason for who they are but i think sometimes you can have your view as long as you're not using it as a tool to weaponize against people who aren't as fortunate as you 
Well, that's what I thought. To be honest, I was I was like, well, like I said, if that if that's if that's what what armor you've built to 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 thrive and survive in this world, then I respect that. But equally, I don't want to see potential white allies using that as an excuse. Going well, he said it's okay. It's like no, it, it, it that don't work. I, I have one last question for you. One very quick question because, yeah, is it getting better? Even incrementally, do you think? And if not, can context it? Better, contextualize better. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I suppose you were talking about that with David Lammy. Like, can you can, do you do you feel do you feel optimistic that there's a way forward? I feel I feel optimistic in the sense that as a as a community, specifically in a racial conversation. Again, I'll say this for gender as an observer of it uh, is that the collectivizing of people to come together on the issues that impact them has happened more now than ever. But I think the the discourse has got more toxic and I think it's become almost performatively so. I, I think about Piers Morgan and I think I guarantee you, you know, Alex Beresford has spoken a few times and said that he's a great guy and he's on, on one realm. He's helped him in his career. He's given him tips about his broadcasting. He's brought him onto the platform to have a voice from some of these conversations. But I think like we've got to a place now when people aren't even considering that we each other are, are human beings. We're just, we're just, we're platforming and clip baking, but what clip baiting, but what, what, what we're actually doing is creating a condition for the extremities of all of those views to now have a home. And we've now platformed, you know, GB News is destined to be the most ridiculous Oof. platform of all time. I know. Following what, you know, Fox News is just, it's, it's just there just to say the opposite of what decent humanity is. And I feel like it's like, you know, even the conversation around things like um, uh, uh, freedom of speech, these are just like, you know, freedom of speech was was really about pursuing the ability to hold people in power to account. It wasn't about people in power to say whatever they want and punch back. It's always the ability to have the everyday person being able to say something about billionaires or people in power uh, or even a neighbor and it'd be okay. And there's a lot of people out there who don't quite know what freedom of speech it's, it's, means. It's a brilliant, you know, decoy. They think it basically means I need to be able to say what I want. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's horrific. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, it, it's, it's getting, it's getting better because the minimum level of expectation that people are prepared to accept is lower than ever. But now we've just had more people and these people have a lot of money. They have a lot of resources, they have a lot of time and they, they seem to be on our screens and in our, in positions of decision-making are digging in their heels, holding on to something that actually doesn't help their life. Like if you think to somebody who speaks so ill of any community group and you think to yourself, then you don't have that person in your life. Like the idea that I, I have white people in my life, I have gay people in my life, I have women in my life. I wouldn't remove a portion of them to just like, to be right about something that I think I'm right about. Like, no, I want you in my life. I want to experience the richness of different people and cultures in my life because that's the best lived experience. Like, I want to discover things of you. I want to eat your food made by you. I want to, you know, hear your stories about what happened to you growing up. That's just a normal human being. And that should be just heavily normalized. We always talk about it as if like helping you know, black people is about taking something from somewhere else or, you know, helping the lived experience of gay people is like saying that being heterosexual is wrong. Like none of this is, it's not, a, it's not a, a or it's an and 
And I, and I feel like we've got to a bit of a dark place where that discourse has been platformed very, very heavily. Um, and they've had allowed to have that conversation un, uncontested. And now they've got their own network and it will continue to get more and more ridiculous. But I, I just think, you know, Britain has put itself in a position where it isn't a superpower anymore by choice, by the way. This isn't like, you know, people, it just isn't by choice. It's no longer a superpower and it's moving itself into isolation every single year. And people will just move into another place in 20 years time. It will be like, I want to live in China and the same thing will will happen there in terms of what's happening here it's like the world will evolve without Britain at the center of it and it will never be able to colonize the world like it once did in a million years because the superpowers have completely shifted uh, agreed I think it's a I hate to say it but I think it's a I think it, it's going to wane into um, global sort of insignificance now um, by choice exactly like you say and look this week Alex Barrett I don't know if it was this week but in the last few weeks um Thierry Henry signed off to it who said I'm not going I'm not doing Twitter anymore because of racist abuse and Alex Beresford didn't even just make didn't make a, an announcement he just left it's um yeah it's it's got a change um uh, listen thanks man I appreciate no your worries, time man we'll definitely we'll definitely do this again it'd be great to do this on your platform and continue the conversation because I'm sure there'll be some sort of follow-up from this and there'll be some afterthoughts that you have we can continue them in the next conversation and I think you know I, I appreciate you sticking your hand up thanks for coming on and being really open and also being really open about the thing with the Michael Jackson cast and I think not everybody owns their own thing so I think standing in your own you know mistakes and errors is, is a really powerful thing and so mm-hmm. you know thank you for doing that we can all learn significantly amount from from that experience Nice one, man. Absolute pleasure. Um, speak to you soon, Absolutely. I hope. Thank you. And so thank you guys for listening. I really much appreciate it. We'll be back next week with another episode. Uh, you can find us at, at Dope Black Dads on all social media platforms. You can also email me for a chat at hello at dopeblackdads.com. Thank you so much for listening, my brothers. I appreciate you all. Uh, we'll be back next week. An unforgettable day out at Kildare Village isn't just about discovering what's new in your favourite boutiques. It's not just about complimentary parking and fresh air, fresh fashion, or about unmissable restaurants and pop-ups and shopping under clear blue skies. And it's not just about spectacular savings all year round. No, an unforgettable day out in Kildare Village is about all this in one beautiful open-air setting. Kildare Village, something extraordinary every day. Orla's driving her new Citroen C4 crossover. She's on a call with her friend who's asking if her in-laws from hell have left yet. Orla's husband is in the front seat. The in-laws are in the back seat. Orla is on hands-free. This could be a very uncomfortable drive. Except the Citroen C4 crossover comes with advanced comfort seats and best-in-class rear legroom, making it a very comfortable drive indeed. Citroen. Engineered for comfort. See citroen.ie. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Acast and Befeller.
Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skrætter alle de der podcast og forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmagle.